0: Well, I put in your notes a, a little chart that I've put together that kind of helps me encapsulate what we've talked about for the last 12 weeks. And it's really the life of the believer. And uh, you're going to be familiar with a lot of this. May, maybe some you aren't. Uh, maybe the terms aren't as familiar. But you're going to get the general idea. And it's my attempt to kind of give you a, a graphic that you can look at to understand this process that we're in, you know that we were saved, we're being sanctified, and one day we're going to be glorified. And so what I want to do is just kind of briefly look at this and take it apart and see what God has done, is doing, and what he's going to do. Because if you don't keep your eyes on the big picture, the full scope of the picture, and you live only in here we are, right here, right now, it really can become confusing, frustrating, disappointing. Um, so Paul, I've used this phrase before. I think Paul lived with his head on a swivel. You know, he's always looking back, but he's always looking forward. And that helped him live in the here and now. He never forgot the past, who he was, what God has done. And he most certainly never forgot the future because that's what he lived for. And that helped him live in the here and now as he lived his life on this earth. So it all begins with what? Our salvation and regeneration. We don't talk about regeneration very much. Um, it's, it's a very biblical term, but we just don't discuss it. We kind of just talk about salvation, and salvation's huge. It's key. But without regeneration, there is no salvation. Here's what Paul told Titus. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, speaking of who? Christ. He's the epitome of. He's the actual image of God's goodness and kindness. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, it's not anything you did. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It wasn't your good deeds, your good works. It was his, but it was according to God's own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, It's Christ who makes the Holy Spirit available to us, Apart from him, we have no access to the Holy Spirit. And then it says, so that being justified by his grace, justified simply meaning being made right with God through this process, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice the last two words, eternal life. That's the goal. That's the objective. Never forget that. And again, we don't talk about that very much. Even as believers, In an evangelical, Bible-believing church, we don't always talk about eternal life enough. And eternal life is the goal. It's the objective. So we're going to, this morning, see that this whole thing of the beginning, the middle, and the end all have to go together. But this idea of the washing of regeneration, what is that? What does Paul mean when he tells Titus about this? Well, the the Greek word is Pelagonesia and it means new birth. That should be very familiar to all of us. Okay, it's a term that we've heard, we've used. It talks about the regeneration, the renewal of something from one state to another state. And really the idea is from a bad state to a better state. It's the idea of something being made new. We have this phrase from the lips of Jesus and he's talking to Nicodemus. You remember the Pharisee came to him and Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now this, this rock Nicodemus' world, he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, he's well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures and he knows, he thinks, what the kingdom of God is all about. And Jesus says, well, you gotta be born again. Where does his brain go? Well, you mean I gotta get back in my mother's womb? You know, that that that's kind of perverse way of thinking, but he's, he's on a physical realm. He's thinking, born again, what in the world does that even mean? But see, Jesus is telling him about something spiritual that's going to have to happen in his life if he truly wants to be a part of the kingdom of God. He thought he was already part of the kingdom of God. Why? He's a Jew. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's therefore one of the chosen ones. And he's a Pharisee. He's the cream at the top. He's the best, at least in his eyes. And Jesus says, no, you're going to have to be born again. He writes to the Ephesians and says, once you were dead, remember he's writing to Christians, right? Just like you and I, you used to be dead because of your disobedience and your sins, but God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, what did he do? He gave us life. That's what regeneration is. You were taken from death to life. How? by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Yes, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, but without the Holy Spirit's regenerating work, nothing would have happened. And so this idea of regeneration is huge when it comes to us thinking about salvation, that we have been given life. We used to be dead. This is that that idea of Paul looking backwards and never forgetting that there was a time when I was dead, lifeless, hopeless. Yes, I was a Pharisee. I was the top of the top. I was the On on the fast track to the top of the the Sanhedrin. I could have been the high priest. I was an achiever, an overachiever, but he says, you know what? I was dead, and then God gave me life through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, Tori says this "What's, What's regeneration? Regeneration is the impartation of life, spiritual life, to those who are dead, spiritually dead, through their trespasses and sins. So, at the very beginning of your relationship with Christ, and I'm gonna assume, probably wrongly so, but everybody in this room is a believer. You at some point placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I was seven, you may have been 70. You could have been 17, 27, 37, really doesn't matter when, it's that you did. And when you did, you were taken from death to life. And that's pretty significant, right? That starts the journey. And it's important because dead people don't save themselves. I've done a lot of funerals since I've become a pastor. Not my favorite job. But I've never seen a corpse get up and give their own eulogy. I've never seen them get up and thank people for coming. I've never seen a corpse do anything other than lay there and eventually go in the ground. Because dead people can't save themselves. People without life can't revive themselves. See, you weren't kind of half dead, and on your way to life, you were completely dead without life, and then you were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit through the mercy of God and because of the death of Jesus Christ. That's pretty important. That's how our journey began with our regeneration And that resulted in what? Our positional sanctification. And this is just review. But when you came to faith in Christ, you became sanctified, set apart. You were chosen by God. You became a child of God. It happened immediately, and it was a one-time event. So when you were regenerated and brought back to life, you became a child of God. And that's important for us to remember. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ. That's why we read just a second ago, it's not because of your righteousness, it's because of his, Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He was a sinless substitute. He was the lamb of God, unblemished, without sin, who died in your place in my place. And because of his righteousness, which satisfied a holy God, you, by virtue of him imputing that righteousness to you are now righteous in God's eyes. He sees you through the blood of Christ. He sees you as holy. So it's, it's permanent. I'm justified. I'm right with God. And what's amazing about this, guys, is that you can't screw this up. Now, I can screw up a lot. I'm like a pro at screwing stuff up. I can't screw this up. I can't screw up my sanctification. Now I can live unsanctified. We talked about it last week. I can live unholy, even though I'm sanctified, right? I can be a child of God and not live like one, but it doesn't make me any less a child of God. It just makes me kind of disappointing as a child of God. See, I am set apart. I belong to him. If I die today, I go to be with him based on the righteousness of Christ. So I'm positionally sanctified. I have a new nature. I have everything I need to live the Christian life, and we've talked about it for weeks now, and I am permanently sealed by the Holy Spirit, permanently. He's never going to leave me. God's never going to turn his back on me. He's never going to look down, shake his head, and go, okay, all bets are off now. That's a deal breaker. You're done. You're no longer sanctified. You're no longer mine. I unadopt you. The blood of Christ is not sufficient for you. That's never going to happen. So this idea of positional sanctification is huge, and it leads to what? Where we are right now. See, we're in this middle zone where I'm saved, but I'm not yet in heaven, so I'm living here on earth as a child of God in an unredeemed world, doing battle every day with a fallen nature, a sin nature, an enemy who hates me, and a world who doesn't understand me, and Jesus said hates me, and I'm to live out my sanctification, my set apartness. I'm to live who I am every day of my life. It's ongoing. Never stops. Day by day, step by step, all along the way till he calls me home until he comes back. This is what some refer to as experiential sanctification. All that means is I get to experience it. It's not always fun, is it? Sanctification is not always fun. It's not always you know, emotionally high. It's not always a a great experience. It's sometimes a painful experience to go through sanctification because as we learn, sometimes it comes through what? Suffering. But I do get to experience it. And I have seen in my life, and you have probably seen in your life, I hope you've seen in your life, sanctification taking place. You can look back and go, man, I've grown. I, I feel closer to God than I used to. I know more scripture than I used to. I'm more compassionate, more kind, more caring than I used to be. Am I perfect? No, but I'm on a journey. And, and sometimes what we get defeated with is as we live this life, it's all full of hills and valleys. It's peaks and valleys, right? We get a high. Things are great. I'm doing great with God. And the next day we fail, we sin, and then and we just get disappointed. The, the key is that we're, yeah, there's peaks and valleys, but we're tracking upwards, That's the goal. We're tracking upwards because we know what the end is. We know what the goal is. And we experience it. When I was saved at seven, I had no real experience. And I don't mean I didn't have experience in life. I didn't feel anything. I'd been thinking about it for a long time. My dad and mom had talked to me about the gospel for years. And then the day came, my dad gave an invitation, and I finally got up the guts, and I walked down the aisle, and I didn't feel a thing. It wasn't this emotional high. I didn't weep, I didn't cry. You know, I was just, I can't believe I'm down here and I did this. And my dad couldn't believe I was down there and did this. But I did it. I didn't feel anything. I didn't experience anything. Maybe you did, but guess what? All along this journey of life since I was seven, I have felt and experienced my sanctification and my unsanctification. It's experiential and it's ongoing. It never stops until I'm completely transformed. But along the way, guess what? The goal is your transformation. Whose goal is that? God's goal. Therefore, it should be your goal and my goal. But I'm to be transformed. How do I know that? Well, Scripture. Paul told the Corinthians, we all, believers, Christians, with unveiled faces, in other words, we now see, there's, the veil's been removed, we get the gospel, we know who Jesus is, we are reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Whose image? Christ's image. From one degree of glory to another. It's not in one, a one fell swoop. It takes time. And you're probably like me. There's a little bit of impatience in you and you get tired of the journey. You get tired that when are we going to be done with this? I've t- I talked to two guys this morning who've both had injuries and are going through therapy and therapy takes time and it's painful and it hurts and nobody likes it. But that's kind of what we're in. We're in this therapy, moving from one condition to a new condition while we live in this world. So from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Then he tells the Romans, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of who? His Son. That's God's will. That's God's predetermined will for you and I is that we be conformed to the image of his son. And that's what's taking place. And you may say, well, I, I just don't see it. Well, it may be just because you're looking at it from the wrong vantage point. Maybe others see it in you, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's not happening. Well, whose fault is that? Is it God's? Is it the Holy Spirit's? Is your Bible wrong? Did you get a bad version? It's probably you. Well, what do you do about that? Wail about it? Moan over it? Just give up? No, you you say, okay, Lord, you've given me everything I need. I have the Holy Spirit within me. I know I can trust your word because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I've got the body of Christ around me. Help me take advantage of everything you've given me. And I want to continue to be transformed. Haven't seen much lately, but you know what? I've got lots of time. And so I'm going to work on that. And what we're moving towards, and this is, this is what I want you to hear this morning, what we're moving towards is this. See, if you live your life on this earth and all you hear and all you've heard me say is, well, gosh, you've got to be more holy. You've got to become more righteous. You've got to pursue your sanctification. Well, guess what? You're already righteous. You don't need to be more righteous. You just need to live out the righteousness you already have in the power that you have been given. But the goal is not you being the most holy person you can be on this earth. It's realizing that you will never be the holy person you need to be until Jesus Christ returns. He does it. He will complete you. He will make you all that you need to be. And it takes place at the resurrection, which results in our glorification. And Paul was obsessed with this. Paul talked about it a lot. He kept his eye on the prize, as he likes to describe it, because he knew this was the culmination of all things. He knew that he had been saved on the road to Damascus. He knew that he was being sanctified. He knew that God was in him and using him and doing great things through him, but he was also suffering all kinds of things along the way. But he never lost sight of what? The future. He looked backwards, but he always looked forwards. And sometimes we look too long backwards and not enough forwards. What do I mean by that? Well, I can look back and go, man, I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm so glad I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And I should be glad about that. But if I don't look forward to what's coming, that doesn't do me a whole lot of good. And I find myself wallowing in the here and now because I've forgotten about the hereafter. So Paul was obsessed with it. He talks about it being the goal, the end of the race, the finish, run to win, keep your eye on the prize. Why? Because that's the goal. You will never be fully sanctified until then. And and I think think what God puts in me and, and I think puts in you is this holy discontentment that you're not satisfied with your sanctification, that you're never holy enough, but you know that someday you will be. And it keeps you going. Because that's the goal. That's the prize. They've used the analogy of running a race. If you're running a marathon and you don't keep your eye on the 26.2 mile marker, you're going to get discouraged at mile 12 and mile 13 and mile 14, and you're going to want to give up and you want to just walk away. But no, you keep your eye on the prize. You remember what God has in store, that this is his purpose for you, his objective for you. It's not your best life here and now. It's the greatest life then. And we live with that in mind. Listen to what he says to the Philippians. This is Paul, who we put on a pedestal, and we always think of as this holy guy, and he was remarkable and incredible, and he was an apostle and chosen by Jesus Christ. And, and he was. He was all those things. But listen to what he says about himself. He goes, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, righteousness, holiness, perfection. A matter of fact, he goes on, I've that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection, holiness, righteousness, sanctification, for which Christ first possessed me. See, what he understood was Jesus saved him in order that he might one day perfect him. He wasn't perfect in this life. I think he was a pretty incredible guy. I can't wait to meet him, but he wasn't perfect. He wasn't Jesus in this life. But he knew that there's a day coming when he will be like Jesus. He said, no, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling me. See, here's this guy that was doing incredible things for God, sharing the gospel, Um, suffering because of it, getting beaten and stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and bitten by a poisonous snake and everybody thought he was going to die. All these things happening, but he kept his eye on what? The prize. This heavenly prize for which Christ is calling us. What is that heavenly prize? Well, he makes it pretty clear. His future resurrection and glorification. Now, again, this is something you and I don't think a lot about, but if you, if you can picture Paul in your mind, I don't know what the guy looked like. Some think he was small and kind of wiry. Um, we think he might have had a hearing problem. That might have been the thorn in the flesh that he had. We know he had bad eyesight, but we don't know a lot about him. But just think about this. If you have been stoned and left for dead, literally people have taken large stones and pummeled you with them until they all think you're dead... You probably have a few bruises, right? you probably got a few gashes. Your nose probably doesn't fit like it used to. You've got issues, broken bones that didn't heal correctly, and you've been shipwrecked. You've been without food. You've been starved. You've been flogged multiple times. He's got scars all over his body from all kinds of turmoil. And this guy longed for his glorification. I don't know if they had mirrors back then, but I don't think Paul liked to look at himself. And he probably, man, I can't wait to get this replaced. And he was obsessed with it. He was obsessed with his resurrection and glorification. Listen to what he says to the Philippians. God's going to take these weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. When Paul says this, there's a sense of anticipation and eagerness. And I can't wait for that to happen, that he replaces this. And I joke about this, but the older I get, the more I want this replaced. But it's true. It's true. I don't care if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, you should want this replaced because even if you're 20, it's going to go downhill from here. I hate to break the news to you. Work out as much as you want to. You're not going to stop the inevitable. You are going to die. It is going to decay. Something's going to happen. But yet he says, one day we're going to get glorious bodies like his. And he lived for that. He longed for that. He told the Corinthians, our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. Think about this. Every person that dies gets buried in what brokenness? It doesn't matter if they died of cancer. It doesn't matter if they died um, of a heart attack, a stroke, old age. Doesn't matter if they died at 2, 20, 50, 100. They're broken. Why are they broken? Because their body stopped working. They're buried in brokenness. Nobody gets buried healthy, at least I hope not. Nobody gets buried while they're completely healthy. They get buried in brokenness because this thing, this tent, as Paul calls it, stopped working. But he says they're going to be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, complete weakness, and yet they're going to be raised in strength. What kind of strength? Unbelievable, powerful strength made possible by the Holy Spirit, but because now It's not the Holy Spirit within us. It's that we are fully sanctified and redeemed with all the power that we need, with all the health that we need. And he says, someday we're going to be like the heavenly man. Who? Jesus Christ. No longer like Adam, which is what this passage talks about, comparing our life like Adam and our life like the second Adam. We're not going to be like him anymore. We're not going to be in these human bodies anymore. We're not going to be mere human beings anymore. We're going to be like Christ. We're going to be heavenly, we're gonna be holy, and that's gonna to lead to the last part of our transition, which is called plenary sanctification. Big word that just simply means complete. One day it's all gonna be done. I will be completely sanctified. No longer just positionally sanctified, having, in a sense, the borrowed righteousness of Christ. No longer being sanctified, growing in holiness, I will be sanctified. I will be complete, whole. It will all be done, finished. How do I know that? Look at 1 John 3, 2. We are already God's children, right? If you're in Christ, you are God's child. You're his adopted son. You're an heir. But he's not yet shown you what you're going to be like when he appears. I don't know what we're going to look like when Jesus Christ appears and we get these glorified bodies. I don't know. And, and people, you know, wonder about this and there's been debates about it. Here's, here, here's how my brain thinks about it. If a, if a child dies at two and they go to be with the Lord, will they always be two? When my mom died at 98, is she now 98 for eternity? Little bitty woman bent over, gray hair, wrinkled face. Is that what she looks like? I don't think so. I don't think that's how this works. I think we get new bodies. Well, then, Ken, how are you going to recognize your mom? I don't think that's going to be a problem. Well, why not? Well, because I think we're going to have knowledge that we don't have here. It's not going to be based on externals. It's going to be based on internals. We're going to know things we don't know. We're going to recognize. How am I going to recognize Paul? Is he going to have a name badge? Hi, I'm Paul. Underneath it, parentheses, apostle. You know, Uh, no, I'm going to, Hey, that's Paul. How do I know? I never saw a picture of Paul. We're going to know each other. I don't know what they're going to look like, but he says, we do know that we will be like him, like Christ in what way look like him. No, but we will have what all that he has new bodies. We'll see him as he really is. And we will see ourselves as we have really become. See, you can see why Paul kept his eye on the goal and lived with that in mind and never lost sight of it. And this is why this whole study of sanctification is so important. But it's not just that we are being sanctified, but guys, one day we will be totally sanctified. And we're called to live holy right here, right now. And if you keep your eye on the prize, it makes the pain and the suffering and all that you go through in this life worthwhile because you know there's an end to this madness. There's, God's got a plan. He's working it out and I don't have to worry about it, but I do need to pursue it. I do need to make it a priority because it's a priority for him. And I have everything I need. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the Word of God. I have the body of Christ. I have friends. I have wise people in my life. I should grow. Why not grow? Why not grow? Why not pursue what he's pursuing for me? But yet we face opposition every single day. You do, I do, it's real, it hurts, it's painful. And how are we gonna handle that? Well, Paul would say, press on, keep going, don't give up, fight the good fight, never give in, never give up. I love what he tells Timothy, fight the good fight for the true faith, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Notice what he says? Fight for what? Your best life now? No, eternal life to come. Fight for that, fight towards that, live for that in mind. Don't let anything distract you from the prize of eternal life. And this is one of my favorite books in the Bible, favorite verses in the Bible. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. That's a call to you and I, as men, to do what? Be on the alert, how? Knowing that you live in, a, in an age, in a time when we are under attack and where the enemy wants to defeat you and distract you, but we can stand firm. How? Because we have strength in numbers, but also the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have a faith based on something we know that the world doesn't know. We have a hope. We have a future. And we're to act like men. What kind of men? Godly men. Faithful men. Righteous men. Righteous men. And be strong. How? In your strength? No, the strength of the Spirit. And then we're to do it all in love. We live in a difficult day. We live in a difficult time. It's not easy pursuing sanctification in the day in which we live, but that's the call for you and I to increasingly become more like Christ. So this leads me into our little introduction into the book of Judges. Why the book of Judges? Well, it's in the Bible. That ought to be enough. Yeah, Ken, but it's in the Old Testament. Yeah, you're right. We saw that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, for encouragement, to give us hope. We can learn lessons from these people. But one of of the things I did is I, I created this little chart. I like to create charts because it helps me. I'm a visual kind of guy. And this is my attempt to put together Israel, Old Testament Israel, and the church, New Testament church, of which we're a part. And so this is a simplified chart, obviously, but what I want to do is show you the comparisons between Israel and us, and why we can learn so much from reading the Old Testament. So their journey begins. It doesn't really begin here, but there's this point in time where they're held captive in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. Well, we're captive in sin and death, right? The world is dead in their trespasses and sin. They are sent a deliverer in the form of Moses. His job given to him by God is to redeem the people, get them out of there, set them free. Well, God also sent Jesus to do the same thing for you and I when we were captive to sin and death, when we couldn't save ourselves. Well, if you think about it, when Moses came to the people of Israel, what was their first reaction to this deliverer? Who the heck are you? And who's this God? Remember, he, he, he knew this was going to happen. So he said, God, what do I tell him? Who do I say is sending me? And God says, tell him I am. And, and I, I know he just had to go, that's it? I am? And when he said that to the people, I know they went, who? And then he had to do some miracles before they started listening. But they initially rejected him as the deliverer, but eventually they listened, and they were what? Released. Released from what? Captivity. Well, not all of us initially accepted the call of Christ, the gift of salvation, but ultimately we did. And we were saved. We were set free. We were regenerated. Well, for Israel, it eventually leads to what? The promise of the promised land. It was promised to Abraham. And he said, someday your people are going to possess this land. Judges is them getting into the land, possessing the land, or Joshua. And then Judges is, how are they going to live once they're in the land? And so that's what this middle section is about. They're in the land. So when we start the book of Judges, Israel is in the land, has conquered most of the land, not all of it. They haven't gotten rid of all the enemies. They haven't been fully obedient, but they have everything that they were told they were going to have. So look at the promises, fruitfulness, provision, victory over their enemies, God's power, his presence, and all the blessings they could stand. That's what God said would happen when they get in the land, but they had to keep his commands, right? they had to keep the law. They had to remain holy, set apart. They had to be obedient, faithful, remove all the idols, destroy all the enemies. Had they? Did they? No. And that's the book of Judges. It's the people of God having been given everything by God, not living in obedience to God. Well, think about it. That's sanctification, guys. That's us. See, we're in this place called sanctification. We're in the middle zone between our salvation and our glorification. And guess what? We have the same promises. We have fruitfulness, provision, victory over the enemy, God's power and presence and blessing. But we've got to be what? Holy, obedient, faithful, get rid of the idols in our lives and destroy the enemies. That's not talking about your political enemies. For those of you who are bent that way. If suddenly some politician's face came into your brain, you're missing the whole point. This is not the enemies out there that you hate who don't believe what you believe and who don't do what you would like them to do and disagree with your political stance. This is the enemies within your own life. Those enemies that hold you back and hold you down and keep you from living the life that you're supposed to live. It's the sin in your life. This is what we're to do. And so there's this incredible parallel between Israel and there's so many lessons we're going to learn when we study what was going on in their lives in the book of Judges. Because here's what's really incredible. They were God's treasured possession. So are we. They were his chosen people. So are we. They were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So are we. They were his inheritance. So are we. All the things that are true of them are true of us. They lived then. We live now. And they were a people holy to the Lord, set apart, sanctified, belonging to him. Did they live like it? And what happens when you don't look like it? See, here's what's incredible about the book of Judges is that God had done for these people everything he said he would do. At the end of the book of Joshua, okay, and it sets up the book of Judges, They're in the land. Joshua's the one that led them into the land. He's the one that helped them conquer their foes. He's the one that that helped them um, divide up the land into the 12 tribes. And he's about to die because listen what he says. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That's a cute way of saying I'm about to croak. I'm almost done here. And he says, you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one thing. He has kept every promise. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And yet we're going to see what happens. Even though God's been faithful, will they be faithful? And he gives them this upbeat note at the very end or the book does, it's not Joshua. This is actually from the Lord. He says, the people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. For chapter 24, 31, at the end of the book of Joshua, he's about to die, and there's this pronouncement that as long as he was alive and the elders with him were alive, that generation stayed faithful. Completely, permanently, perfectly, no. No. But they got into the land. They conquered most of their enemies. They occupied the territories they were supposed to. And it sounds pretty upbeat. But it sets up Judges. The book of Judges. And the book of Judges is pretty interesting because there's two verses that bookend the entire book. Chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 21, verse 25. And there's a typo in your notes and you can fix it. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation, the one we just read about at the end of Joshua... Joshua, the elders, and all those people along with him die. They're gathered to their fathers. They die. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord of the work that he had done for Israel. What's that mean? Does that mean they're heathens? That means they're pagan worshipers? That mean they've totally left Yahweh for other gods? No. They still believe in him. They just don't know him. They don't understand him. They've forgotten all the stuff he's done in the past. All the way back to what? Egypt, Red Sea, Wilderness, clothes never wore out, manna, quail. They forgot all that. And now they're in the land. They've got all these blessings. They're living in houses they didn't build. They're harvesting grapes they didn't plant. All this great stuff is happening, and they no longer know the work that he had done for them. Then scan all the way to the end of the book, and this is how it ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when I read that verse, what I read is everybody's sinning like a champ. You know, everybody's committing all kinds of egregious sins. They're looking at porn on the internet. They're, you know, lusting after their neighbor's wife. They're cheating on their income tax They're just sin after sin after sin. That's not what this means. And don't miss this. Everyone was doing what was right. What's interesting about that word right is it's the word yeshar, and it means righteous. Everybody's doing what they think is righteous, good, holy, but they're doing it based on the wrong standard. Now, guys, take that and apply it to you. Do you do that? Do you do things that you think are righteous and holy, but you've not really checked with God to make sure that's what he would have you do? Have you made decisions in your life thinking that this is a good decision? I haven't prayed over it. I haven't sought counsel. I didn't go to the Word. But you know what? I'm a pretty sharp guy. And I'm going to do it. And you think it's righteous and right and good, and God thinks it's evil. Why? Because it's wicked and sinful? No, because you didn't check with him. You didn't seek his will. And all throughout the book of Judges, you're going to see these people doing what is right in their own eyes and forgetting the standard that God had given What was the standard? The word of God and himself. He says, I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Do it according to my standard." And he says, I've given you the law, and you're to keep my commandments and do them. I'm the Lord. Obey me. Be holy. Keep my, my, my law. At least consult the law before you make these decisions. Don't do things without my input. And yet they did. And then at least six or seven times in the book of Judges, you're going to see this phrase. And we'll look at it in January. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it introduces A period of the judge, a judge gets raised up. See, in their eyes, they're doing what's right. In God's eyes, He sees it as evil. Why? Because it's sin. No, because they're not doing what they think is right the way God would have them do it. So you're going to see it over and over again. Chapter three, verse seven. Chapter three, verse twelve. Chapter four, verse twelve. Chapter six, verse one. Chapter ten, verse six, and chapter thirteen, verse one. Over and over again. See, the book of Judges is it's a cycle. And we'll see that cycle. But over and over again, they're doing what they think is right, but it's evil on the side of the Lord. See, God's looking down and going, guys, I redeemed you, saved you, put you in this land, fulfilled all my promises, so that you would live the way I want you to live. But you're living the way you want to live. See, God's not interested in their view of righteousness. He's not interested in your view of righteousness. He's not wanting your opinion. He doesn't need it. And he knows if you're not careful, you will take his truth and distort it if you use your standards as the judgment. Here's what he said about the Israelites. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good, good is evil, dark is light, light is dark, bitter is sweet, and sweet is bitter. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, that's the world today. That's the progressives. That's what they're doing. And again, picture the politician of your choice. They're taking dark and saying it's light. They're saying evil is good and good is evil. He's talking about the people of God, not the lost world. So we can do this. Israel did this. I love this one. Isaiah 39 through 10. These people, the Israelites are stubborn rebels who refuse to pay attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell the seers, those who have visions, stop seeing visions. In other words, stop hearing from God. I'm sick of you hearing from God. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what's right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. I don't want to hear that anymore. Tell us lies. If you have to lie, lie, but just don't tell me the truth. Who's he talking to? The church, the body of Christ, the people of God, the chosen ones. See, they had screwed up on this idea of righteousness, and they turned it into a subjective idea. That well, I get to decide what's righteous. I'm a child of God. I, I'm pretty sharp. I know what's Right you know what? God's not going to debate this with you. You may think it's good in your eyes, and he's going to look at it and say, it's evil because you're not doing what I ask you to do. And he doesn't want your opinion. He doesn't solicit it. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't want it or need it because it's irrelevant. That's why our sanctification is so important. That's why the book of Judges is going to be so important for us to understand that doing what is right in your own eyes always ends poorly. And we're going to see it over and over again. 13 judges, which means 13 cycles of doing things that are right in your own eyes, getting the wrong outcomes. So I'll close with this. This is Joshua. Again, he's about to die. It's the end of the book that bears his name. He's trying to get the people to understand something. He knows they're not done yet. He knows that, guys, you got to finish what God sent you here to do. And he says, therefore, fear the Lord, honor him, revere him, give him the glory that he deserves, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, serve the Lord. And then listen to what he says. This is interesting. If it is evil in your eyes, in other words, if you see this as evil to serve the Lord, See, they're doing what's right in their eyes, and obviously they're worshiping the wrong kind of gods because he's saying, Hey, would you finally put them away? And then he says something pretty interesting Choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. See, what he's saying is, All right, enough is enough. Choose a God. But don't have 14 gods and don't throw God into the mix. Choose a God. Just choose one. Get out out and make a decision. I'm either going to serve Yahweh or I'm going to serve another God. But he says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He's about to die. But he's challenging his house. You know what, guys? You're going to set the standard. You're going to live by the right criteria. You're going to do what God's called you to do. And here's my challenge to you and to me, guys. Will you serve the Lord? Will you in your house serve the Lord? Will you make His priorities your priorities? Will you make your sanctification your goal because it's His goal? Will you live with your eye on the prize? So here's your questions for this morning. What kind of things do, do we do that are right in our own eyes but that are actually evil in the eye of the Lord? And again, don't think sin. Just think things that you do, decisions you make that you don't consult God on, and you move out in confidence without any idea that this is what God would have you do. And how do those right things produce wrong outcomes? Be specific. I've got a list as long as my arm, and I'm sure you do too. In what ways do we tend to forget all the great things God has done, and how does this influence our sanctification? See, that new generation forgot. Stop looking back. And therefore, they had no confidence in God in the here and now. Finally, close in prayer, dedicating yourselves to serve the Lord through a life of sanctification. And here's what I'd like you to do is is encourage one another, pray for one another that you would live with that little mantra that Joshua had. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord till he comes back or till you go to meet him. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible doctrine, this gift of sanctification. Thank you, Father, that it's a process. It is not yet done, but it will be done because you are faithful and you will finish what you began. And that, Father, we can understand and live in the reality and the hope and the faith and the belief that there is a day coming when we will be made like your son in completeness. We will have no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, No more suffering. And Father, that day is real and it's coming. May we live with that in mind. And in the meantime, Father, may we live with the belief and the hope and the dedication and the determination that as for me and my house, we're going to serve you. And we're going to do it faithfully, even in the midst of opposition. Lord, I love these men and I know you love them. And may they feel that love as they move through the holidays in thankfulness, for all that you've done in gratefulness for sending your son to make all of this possible. And I pray that this in his holy name, amen.